You guys ready to study the word tonight? Let's get into Ephesians chapter 4, and we left off in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are over the snow? You're just like, I'm over it. All right. I'm with you. How many of you guys are like, it could snow more? So all five, we've got a special (laughs) small group for you guys. So man, it's been crazy. It's nice that the sun is out. I think the forecast is looking good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to read your word tonight and God, we admit our shortcomings before you and our inadequacy and our brokenness. And we pray that you would speak into that with your love and the hope of your word, that we could be transformed and changed and be able to to walk out this Christian life that you've given to us. So Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you're here, that you're with us, that you know us, you live inside of us. May we be strengthened by the power of you tonight, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Fashion trends tend to be a big deal for some. I know the London Times gives a daily report of what the royal family is wearing. Can you imagine? People follow that. They're they're concerned with what, what the royal family may be wearing. In Japan, it's a big deal what you wear on the golf course. Fashions, people spend thousands of dollars to make sure they're dressed in the right attire before they play golf. It may be because the fee to get on the golf course averages about $450 to play 18 holes holes of golf. So they're definitely concerned about that. We see this image that's portrayed, a whole new me. You know, if I get a new wardrobe, it's going to be a whole new me. You see these advertisements like, man, if I could have that flannel then my life is going to be a giant fishing trip, isn't it? You know, you watch these advertisements uh, for, for clothes. There's books that are written. There's manuals that are written on power dressing. You know, if you want to have power and influence at work, then this is the way that you need to dress and the colors that you need to dress in. Well, tonight I'm here to talk about clothes as well. I know it's a surprise coming from me since I don't set the trends in fashion, but Here's what I'm going to talk to you about, Divine Threads. It's a, it's a new store that started down on Nevada in the University Village. No, the Divine Threads is what God has provided for us, what he has given to us that's our new wardrobe that we're in Christ Jesus. We've been encouraged to walk worthy of the calling that we have been given of Christ. There's three key words in Ephesians that I want you to remember. The first is to sit. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's our position that's been completed in Christ. And then chapter 4 verse 1 gave us the second word, and that's to walk. We're being challenged to take what we know of the grace of God and begin to walk. And maturity is a good thing, isn't it? There's an expectation as children grow that they would mature. When a child first potty trains, there's great excitement, isn't there? You jump up and down, you hand out candy, you've got rewards. But when kids are 14, you don't rejoice that they're using the bathroom anymore, right? Because they're maturing. And when we first come to receive Christ as our Savior, people are excited, they're clapping, they're jumping up and down. You receive Christ as your Savior. This is incredible. 
But over time, there's that expectation that we should be growing, that we should be maturing, that we should be walking. And that's the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this church of Ephesus, and he's saying, okay, guys, now's the time to apply the grace that you have been given from God. And last week, we saw that we're to walk in unity, to, to work hard to make sure that we're in unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to keep the unity that God has entrusted to us. But also, that we're to walk in diversity, that we've each been given gifts by God, that we each have a part to play inside of the body of Christ to build up other believers. As we get into verse 17, we're going to see that we're to walk differently. We're to walk differently than those that don't know Christ as our Savior. We're to put off the old threads, and we're to put on the new threads. So verse 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles and the futility of their minds. In light of the fact that we are the body of Christ, in light of the fact that we've got a part to play in God's kingdom, then we should walk differently. We should walk differently than the Gentiles, people that don't know Christ as our Savior. So we think about what are the ways that unbelievers act? What defines their action? What is a lot of words that unbelievers speak? What's their conversation about? What is the way that they spend their money? How does that reflect their priorities? And for us as believers, what should our actions display about what we believe about Jesus Christ? What should our words display of what we believe about about Jesus Christ? And there should be a difference. It's not a, a judgmental difference. It's not a I'm better than you difference. It's the grace of God being manifested in our lives that we can be the light of Jesus Christ. Amen? that we're reaching out with compassion, we're reaching out with love and humility, but there's a clear call that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, that part of this maturity process is God's going to be transforming and changing our lives. One of the things that's noted in verse 17 is in the futility of the mind. Uh, Futility, it speaks of emptiness. It, It speaks of this place where it's pointless, meaningless. A lot of people that don't know the Lord as their Savior, their thoughts are, there's no point. This is incredibly meaningless. What's the point of my life? What's the point of other people's lives? And when we come to know Christ as our Savior, he changes our thinking, and he gives us purpose. We know that we're loved by God, that we have purpose in our days, that we have purpose for the reason of walking this planet. Describing our lives before Christ, describing those Gentiles that don't know the Lord, saying, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. So they don't understand who Christ is. They don't understand what it means to have a relationship with him. And so they're alienated from the life of God. Now, could we agree tonight that life is difficult? It's challenging, isn't it? Even when you know the Lord, it's challenging and it's difficult. It doesn't even take trauma in our lives to provide challenge. Just, just daily life, just getting through all of the things that need to be done in a day and a week are challenging. Then you do throw in those cataclysmic events that take place, the losing the job, the challenges with health, and the list goes on and on, the difficulty in, in relationship. And unbelievers have all of those same problems, don't they? They face all of those same challenges of life, All the same difficulties, but they're alienated from the life of God. They're separated from the life of God. They're not a part of the vine, Jesus Christ. And goes on to say, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. So they're going through life with a blind heart. Romans 1 tells us what gives us that spiritual condition, and it's to not worship God as God. 
to consider themselves wise. So here they are rejecting Christ, rejecting worshiping God, but then elevating their own wisdom. And then Romans 1 tells us that's that downward spiral to the blindness of their heart. So there should be something different between us and someone who doesn't know Christ because our heart's not blind. Our heart knows who God is. Our heart understands eternal life. In verse 19, who being who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So they're past feeling. They're past conviction. They're past that place of feeling remorse for, for sin. How could somebody not have remorse over sin? It's because they're spiritually dead. You take someone who's dead and you drop a 50-pound weight upon them, they're not going to feel it, right? And the same way, if you're spiritually dead, you don't know Christ as, as your Savior, you're not going to respond in conviction to sin. So they're past feeling, and then they've given themselves over to lewdness. Now, lewdness is unbridled lust and excess. It's really saying, I have no governor. I'm willing to just go for sin and not feel bad about it at all, brag about it, convince you that this is the right thing, thing to do. And then that results in all kinds of uncleanliness with greediness. So we see this progression. There's hardness, darkness, dead, deadness, and then recklessness. And that's the life of an unbeliever. And God's saying, I've called you out of that. that. That's not the stream that you're living in any longer. So that describes uh, for us what the old threads are. So we're talking about old clothes. Those were all of the things that described our life before we knew Christ as our Savior. Those are the things that we're putting off. Those are the old threads. So the second thing is the new threads in verse 20 through verse 24. What Christ is calling us to put on, the divine clothing that he's provided. But you've not so learned Christ. Now this is really interesting to me. This really gets my attention because he's writing to believers He's writing to the church of Ephesus, and he says, you know what, guys? You haven't yet learned Christ. And it's evident because you're struggling with these things. And when we talk about learning Christ, it's not just, okay, I read through the Gospel of John 15 times, and I know the events that took place in Christ's life. It's not learning about Christ, but it's learning who Christ is and having a personal, intimate fellowship with Christ. I think we could all say there's so much more to learn about Christ. There's such a closer friendship to be able to have with Christ. Would, would we be surprised if the message from the Holy Spirit to us tonight was, Eric, you need to learn Christ in a greater way. You need to understand Christ in a greater way. You need to fellowship with Christ in a greater way. And as I would fellowship with Christ in a greater way, then it would affect my lifestyle. It would affect my walk. It would, it would affect these clothes that I'm wearing. My, not my physical clothes, but my spiritual clothes, the choices that I make and how to, to treat people. So as we're reading through the Gospel of John, it's another thing to pause and to fellowship with Christ. Jesus, you're the living water. I want to know that, that living water. Jesus, you're the bread of life. I thank you so much that you're the bread of life. Would you, would you minister to me? Christ, I don't understand this section of scripture, why Lazarus died and you didn't come for three days and allowed him to rot, then only to rise him from the dead. See the difference? I'm fellowshipping with Christ. Even as we go through this Bible study tonight, we're going to talk about 
real things, hard things, convicting things, to go to the Lord and say, God, I'm really convicted over that area in my life. We're, we're fellowshipping with Christ. We're beholding the glory of Christ. We're drawing near to Christ. And Paul puts it this way, you haven't yet learned Christ. In verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So this is what Christ is calling us into as his children and also his disciples is that we would hear him and that we would be taught by him. When he came into the life of the disciples and said, come follow me, he's saying, I want to teach you. Will you allow me to be your master? Will you allow me to call the shots in your life? Will you learn from, from my example? And Christ is the same way today. For us to really learn him and for us to really know him, he's wanting to speak to us individually, to provide encouragement where we need it, to provide correction where we need it, to hear his voice. Jesus said this, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice. We understand that's the voice of Jesus speaking to me through the word. That's the voice of Jesus speaking to me through a still small voice. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. Maybe you've never considered that Jesus is wanting to be your mentor. Jesus is wanting to be your teacher. He's saying, hey, I want to teach you. Maybe there's somebody inside of the body of Christ that you really respect. You go, man, it would be so awesome to spend time with them. I want to know their secret. You know, how do they live out this Christian life? How do they do all of this? How do they rise to all these challenges? And they just happen to call you up, send you a text, and say, you know what? I want you to spend a year with me, and I'm going to mentor you, and I'm going to disciple you. We'd probably go, oh, you know, freak out. This is amazing. You know, this, this is awesome. But here we have someone that's far better than anyone else that's ever walked this planet, Jesus Christ, far more compassionate, far more truthful, far more wise, far more helpful, always present, always available, always going to get a response from Christ. And he's saying, I'm ready to teach you. Are you ready to be taught by me? Are you ready to, to learn from me? Are you ready to put me in that place where you allow me to be your teacher? So here's the things that you put off, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful the deceitful lusts. So in order for us to enjoy the divine clothes that God has provided for us, the old clothes have to go. And it speaks of two things. It speaks of the old man, which in scripture is always our sinful flesh, the desires of our flesh, what dominated us before we received Christ as our savior. And it also says former conduct, things that we did before Christ was, was in our life. Now here's the reality of this. Every day that we wake up, at least every day that I wake up, the old man is alive and well. The sinful desires are alive and well. It would be nice if we could just put off the former conduct at one point on a Wednesday night in April and be done with it. But this is a continual, every day, moment to moment, this is the way that I walked before I knew Christ as my Savior. This is the way that people walk that don't know the Lord. This was my former conduct. This is not who I am any longer. And I'm choosing to put that off. And what Paul is teaching here is it is a choice of the will. My pastor growing up used to put it this way, said, if you change your mind, then God will change your heart. But if you don't change your mind, God won't change your heart. 
So until we make the choice of our will to put off the former conduct and say, this is not who I am any longer. I've got some divine threads. I'm going to put off the anger. I'm going to put off the wrath. I'm going to put off the gossip. I'm going to put off the covetousness. And now I'm going to put on who I am in Christ Jesus. And many have put it this way throughout scripture and Bible teaching. It's the put-offs and it's the put-ons. And it's a favorite illustration of the Apostle Paul. It's almost like Paul is getting dressed. And in his mind, he's going through the spiritual exercise of saying, I feel extremely selfish today. I need to put that off. I'm feeling extremely prideful today. I'm going to put that off. I'm feeling so bitter today over all those that have hurt me. I'm going to put that off. And I'm choosing now to then put on the things that God would ask me to. And as we make that decision, that's where God meets us. That's where God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. It also mentions that the old man grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So if we give in to our sinful flesh, it's going to get more and more corrupt, feed us more and more lies, and lust is extremely deceitful. Why? Because it advertises a great bill of goods. You just need this. If you have this, you're going to be fulfilled. You want it? Go ahead and take it. Then you do get it, but all of a sudden, you're in bondage. All of a sudden, we just feel completely empty. In verse 23, this is part of the put-ons. This is part of those new threads. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Oh, how we need that. How I need that. We're walking in this sinful world. Things are always being thrown at us. Our flesh is alive and well. Have to put off the old man. And then the mind needs to be renewed. And it says renewed in the spirit of your mind. So it's, it's your mind as well as your spirit. Now how does your spirit and mind get renewed? Through times like this. Do you ever feel like after a Wednesday night, I came in just feeling blah, came feel in struggling with this, wondering if God still loved me, doubting that, and then you get into worship and you're reminded that you have a good, good father. You celebrate communion, you get into the word of God, all of a sudden you're like, man, my, my spirit's renewed. You get renewed through the word of God as you spend time in it. God's word is that meat, it's that manna, it's what's renewing our hearts and our minds. Romans 12 says to be renewed in our minds as we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, we're spending time in the word of God. Our brains are getting washed in, in the word of God. Another way that we're renewed is through prayer, through waiting upon the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40 gives us that promise. Those who wait upon the Lord will be renewed. Your strength will be renewed. Do you, do you need that tonight? Do you, oh, I need to be renewed. Wait upon God. A lot of times we're renewed in fellowship. We're refreshed in fellowship. So we spend time with believers and we talk about things like who's going to be the next quarterback for the Broncos and what the weather's going to do and politics. But then we talk about Christ. We talk about who he is in our lives, how he's working in situations. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves renewed. We're renewed through the word. We're renewed through prayer. We're renewed through fellowship. One of the ways that we're renewed is through reaching out. There's a lot of times when we take the time to care for someone else. We're extremely tired. But then as we do that, we're renewed by God. In verse 24, And you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So see the process? First, you have to put off. First, there has to be a rejection 
of the old man. And then there's this putting on of the new man, which God has created for us. And there's nothing more effective or attractive than the clothes that God provides. There's nothing like somebody walking through this life with the love of God, with the forgiveness of God, with the kindness of God. And where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight is from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, and we see contrasting threads. Now, sometimes clothes just don't match, do they? Anybody know that? You know? It's kind of funky sometimes. You're like, hey, bro, that shirt does not go with those pants, or those socks, they, they really, they don't go. You know, the, it's really a contrasting type, type of outfit. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to contrast some of the old clothes with the new clothes. He's going to say, don't let this be part of your life. Now let this be part of your life. In too many days of my life, spiritually, I'm walking around with a lot of contrasting clothes. I'm trying to wear both. You know, I got, I got a little bit of love on, but I got a little bit of anger on as well. You know, I've got kindness socks on, but I'm, I'm wearing a very angry hat. Those type, you get the analogy here? So, so Paul's saying, let this go. He's going to tell us what not to do, but then he's going to tell us what we ought to do, what, what we should do. And the first thing that he addresses is lying, a life free from lying. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So that's what we're to put away. That's part of the former conduct is we should stop lying. For people that don't know Christ as their Savior, there's not a whole lot of conviction, to be honest. It's just the way that the world works. It's illustrated in this story of a a man who is a, a farmer, and he was confronting the baker, and the baker was upset with the farmer. It says, take the case of the baker who suspected that the farmer was supplying his butter, was giving him short weight. So he's saying, man, he's, he's robbing me. His suspicions were confirmed when he carefully checked the weight of the butter for several days. Incensed, he had the farmer arrested. But the judge threw the case out when the farmer explained that he had no scales. So he used a one-pound loaf of bread purchased from the baker as a counterbalance. Just common day, whether it's Main Street or Wall Street, lying. We live in a culture of lying. And what we're called to by God is it says, put away lying and speak truth with, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We have staff devotions here at RMC on Wednesday. Every Wednesday at 9 o'clock, we gather in the high school room, and we're currently uh, going through a book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. They're short chapters, and you're supposed to read the chapters before you come. And it was Pastor Robert's turn to lead the devotion. And he started off this devotion by, by saying, hey, what did you guys think of this chapter? And it got quiet, and especially got quiet in my corner of the circle. And then he says, how many of you read the chapter? And then he, then he said, how many of you didn't, raise, didn't read the chapter? Raise your hand. And everything inside of me was saying, I'm not raising my hand right now. I, I got my book. I can skim through this. I can give it the old attaboy, you know? And then I thought, no, nah, that, that's not right. And I saw Dan Johnson raise his hand, and it gave me the courage to raise my hand as well. <laughs> and and I, I raised my hand like, yeah, I, haven't, I didn't read the chapter. I, I didn't do it this week, you know. I got a lot of really good excuses, but the bottom line is I didn't take the 10 minutes to read the book. I had 10 minutes to, to read the chapter. 
when it really comes down to it, isn't it a strong temptation to, to lie? And maybe it's not a, a bold lie. It's about what, what, what we might call white lies. And what if I would have just kept my hand down in the circle? I'm giving the wrong impression, aren't I? Maybe the, the right information with the wrong implication. Saying, well, I, I'm not going to really get caught here. I, I want to save face here. Another one for me that's always a temptation in this is if someone says, well, you know, have you heard of so-and-so and have you read this in this book? And for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking I should have probably heard of them and read the book, right? And so it's easy just to kind of go along with them and go, oh yeah, I've heard of that book. And then maybe, oh yeah, I've read that book. And then the reality of it is, is I've never heard of it and I've never read it. I never want to read it. And instead of just saying, you know, I don't really like to read, and I never finish books, and I don't know why I'm a pastor, but I am, and <laughs> this is the reality of the situation, you know. <laughs> Amber can attest to this, like, my nightstand has like seven books, and I haven't finished any of them, you know. <laughs> it's difficult sometimes to just be honest and say, yeah, I, I didn't read the, read the book, I haven't, I haven't heard of them, or instead of making excuses to be in that place of truth. You know this, but let me remind you, God is truth. He embodies truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And God does his work in the midst of truth, in the midst of light, in the light, when we choose not not to lie. And this may be a discipline in our lives when the temptation comes to say, I'm going to put off lying. This was my former conduct. This was my mode of operation. This is how I got through life and how I got through through work. But I'm going to choose to stop lying. I'm going to start speaking the truth because we are the body of Christ. We're members of one another. So when I'm lying to another believer, I'm hurting the body of Christ. If I'm lying to an unbeliever, I'm not being a good witness to them. There's so much strength and power in being able to speak the truth to, to one another. The next area that's addressed is a life free from anger. And I think there's something in here for everyone. You may not struggle with lying, but you struggle with anger. You might not struggle with lying or anger, but you struggle with stealing. I think by the time we're done with these few verses, there'll be something for us to be challenged in. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Think about that for just a moment. Be angry and do not sin. So the emotion of anger in and of itself is not sinful. In fact, if you're healthy spiritually and you're walking with God, there's some things that should make you angry. Jesus was angry. On two occasions, we find him cleaning out the temple and he was angry that the people of God were getting ripped off when they were coming to worship. They wanted to draw near to the Father, but instead they were getting ripped off. There's even a point where Jesus makes a whip and he cleanses out the temple. But in his anger, he never sinned. So we know that anger in and of itself is not a sin because Christ never sinned. So he was able to be angry and not sin. This is a quote out of the Psalms. This is extremely difficult for me. When I'm angry, sin is right behind It's very difficult to be angry and to not sin. Jesus got angry when other people's toes were being stepped on, but not when his toes were being stepped on. When other people were being taken advantage of, but not when he was being taken advantage of. 
So here's that challenge. Be angry and don't sin. Are you getting angry for the right reasons? Are you responding in the right way? But I think this is helpful for us because some of you feel guilty that you're angry. You're going, I'm angry, so I'm sinning. Not necessarily. Are you angry for a righteous reason? Are you responding to that anger in a righteous way? Be angry and don't sin. And then there's this encouragement that God says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath because you're giving place to the devil. You're giving a foothold to, to the devil. This is a very unique statement in scripture that God would say this. If you go to bed angry, you're opening up the door to the devil. Why is that? Because if you're all angry and filled with wrath as we're trying to go to sleep, what happens in our hearts and minds? I can't believe that person did this. I can't believe that they, they said this. Oh, if I could just get revenge and we go to sleep, and Satan has the opportunity then to hopefully plant bitterness into our hearts and lives. This verse is extremely practical because you'll get angry. Sometimes you won't sin in your anger. Sometimes you will sin in your anger. But make the choice to not go to bed angry, to not give a place to the devil. So one of the things that we've discovered in, in our marriage is that if we're having a, a discussion, Amber and I, that it's not fruitful to do that till two in the morning. Anybody else learned that, right? So there are times where we can't get through it in that evening. To, to, and thankfully, by God's grace, we really get along and enjoy each other's relationship. If we can't get through the issue and we get tired and it gets harder and harder to talk through things, we may not be able to completely sort it out, but to get to that place where we're at peace with each other, or we can go to bed in the same bed and then solve it in the morning when we have a fresh perspective. And I want to let you know, neither of us have slept on the couch yet by God's grace, right? Because you can get to that point where not somebody doesn't have to go to the couch. It doesn't have to be, you know, husband's turning this way, wife's turning this way, and you're back-to-back going to sleep, and basically your body language is like, I hate you. I just hate you, you know? And it's like, you know, let's pray. No, I don't want to pray, you know? God bless you. God bless you too. (laughs) You want to get to a place where you're at a place of peace, Maybe you're not at the place where you're reconciled, where everything is worked out, but you're at a place of peace. Maybe a statement like this that says, you know what, I know that there's tension between us. Will you forgive me? And could we please work on this in the morning? Would it be okay if we went to sleep and we worked on it in the morning, but can we go to bed in a place of peace? All right. Okay, let's, let's pray together. A lot of wisdom in that. I know that this is always a battle in life with anger. It seems to be one of those things that we all struggle with, some more than others. We know from the book of James that it tells us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we're angry and we're frustrated and we're yelling and and we're screaming, God can't do his work in that place. It says to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Good advice to us from the book of James. So we go on to verse 8. And it's a life freed from theft. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. So in this, of getting rid of the old clothes, putting on the new clothes, what we're not to do, 
we're also given very practical advice of what we should do. So there's some in the church who are stealing. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't write this. He's writing to believers and he's saying, you've got this lifestyle of stealing and you need to stop and you need to be committed to a really good work ethic. Work hard and allow your work to be worship unto God. And through your work is going to come provision. And when you have that financial provision, one of the purposes is to be able to bless those who are in need. Maybe this is what challenges you. You say, I'm really not someone who gets angry. I'm not really someone who lies, but, but I'll steal. If I have the opportunity to steal, I'll do it. I don't know how it got to be a part of my life, but it's a part of my character, and here I am. Maybe it's in some ways that society says is okay. Well, I'll cheat on my taxes. I don't have any problems stealing from, from the government. They don't use it wisely. It's getting harder and harder to pay taxes, I would agree. April 15th, that's a difficult day, you know. But what did Jesus say? Give unto Caesar what belongs unto Caesar, and what belongs to God, give unto God. Do you think Caesar was a godly governor? Do you think the Roman government was godly and made godly decisions and stood for godly things? But yet Romans 13 and Jesus' words spoke to believers and said you need to pay, pay your taxes. So if they had to pay to Rome, it doesn't give any excuse to us. Maybe you don't have any problem stealing time from your employer. You wouldn't steal money, you know? You'd never steal money, but you steal time. It's, it's no big deal to, to come in late and leave early and, and cheat the boss in, in that way. And God sees and he's saying, I want you to stop stealing and I want you to be committed to a good work ethic. Can I go on a little bit of a tirade? I won't get red in the face, okay? But here's something I've been thinking through for, for a while. Is in the church as a whole, not, not our church, but the body of Christ right now, I think one of the things that we really do is we elevate having a job at a church or having a job at a nonprofit or going overseas and being a missionary which are all great things, a great calling. If that's what God's called you to do, in no way am I trying to take away from that. But we've really elevated that. If you love God and you want to make a difference, you want to be a world changer, then you're going to work at a church, you're going to work at a nonprofit, or you're going to go do mission work. If it's here in the States or, or in another country. And when I look at the New Testament, you know what God says? We're all in the ministry and we're all placed in the midst of our mission field, and work unto God is worship. And so you may be an accountant, you may be a stay-at-home mom, you may be a school teacher, you may pick up trash for a living. You know, it doesn't matter what the profession is, it's the heart. If everybody worked in a church, where would be the witness at Doherty High School? You know, if, if everybody worked in, in the church, where would the witness be in the local bank? If everybody worked in the church, where would be the witness in the police department? If everybody worked in the church, where would the stay-at-home moms be impacting the next generation? But yet we've got this idea for me to really make my life count, it's got to be in the church. I've got to be a pastor. I've got to be a missionary. And what Paul is really saying here is he's saying, stop stealing, work really, really hard. Wake up every day, and whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly to the glory of God. God's going to bless that. You're going to have more than you need. And you start looking around, and you go, who can I bless? Who can I share with? Who can I pass this blessing on to? 
And if you've spent your life stealing, if someone in the church of Ephesus had spent their life stealing, do you not know what kind of transformation this would be? It's the same as going from, you know, lying to telling the truth, from being patient instead of being angry, to say, you know what, guys, guess what? I haven't, I haven't stolen anything for 10 days. And I've been working hard, and I got this thing called a paycheck, and it feels so good. And I got a little bit of extra, and I just gave away 10 bucks. Do you know how good that felt? Instead of taking 10 bucks, I gave away 10 bucks. This is radical, right? So it's a life freed from theft. And then these last few verses is a life that's freed from rot. The things that rot us from, from the inside. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. This is a stick verse. And what I mean by that is it's got a really high standard. It's one of those verses that almost just whacks you up to the side of the head like a stick. Well, God, couldn't I have like five corrupt words that would come out of my mouth? Or how about 90%? If I could, if I could just do 50% in this area, th- this would be good. But God's saying, let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. And the word corrupt, it has the idea of rotten, putrefied filth. Now that we can relate to. God's saying, don't let any rotten, putrefied filth come out of your mouth. Why? Because it hurts the hearer. In Proverbs 13, 3, it says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens it, it wide, his lips shall have destruction. So if you guard your mouth, you're going to preserve your life. But if we open up wide, just let whatever we feel come out, oh, it's going to come to destruction. You know how many times in my life it has come out, the words have come out, and as I'm saying it, it's like, (laughs) I wish I could take it back, but it's out there. It has consequence. The proverb says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Are we one that is a grace dealer or a death dealer? Do we deal life or do we deal death with, with our tongue? But we knew this. We knew this coming into this study, but I think the difficulty a lot of times is the how. I know God wants good things coming out of my mouth, but yet here I am. I'm continuing to struggle with this. It goes further. It goes to the heart because the words flow from the heart. Jesus told us that out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth speaks. So God, would you change my heart? David, he prayed, God, clean my heart. Renew a right spirit with me. God, there's things in my heart that need to go. And that's being reflected in the words that I speak outside of my mouth. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the Lord. And he's walking with the Lord at this point in his life. He's even speaking the message of God. He sees the throne of God in the year King Uzziah died. And he says, woe is me, for I'm undone, and I'm a man of unclean lips. He owned it. Things are coming out of my mouth that shouldn't come out out of my mouth. And then God goes and gets a coal off of the altar and touches his tongue. And it's figurative. It's in this dream that he had. But I wonder if this vision was so vivid that he woke up from the vision and he's like, is my tongue okay? You know, there was a coal that was placed on my tongue. Years ago, as a family, we were at a beach house in, in Oregon. We all chipped in to rent this house and and there was a Weber barbecue. We were barbecuing some hamburgers. And the wind came, as it does on the Oregon coast, and these coals went onto the deck and started to burn the deck. And it was, it was a rental. 
And for somehow in this process and this panic, I'm barefoot and I step right on this hot burning coal, you know. I can still feel the pain and smell the burning flesh. (laughs) The idea of this hot coal being on your tongue, you know. And that's what we need from the Lord. God, I've got a heart problem. I've got a mouth problem that I can't fix. And you're telling me in your word to let no corrupt word come out of my mouth. I want to put off this old speech, put on this new speech. God, would you change my heart and would you touch my tongue? Would you touch it? Would you transform it? Would you change it? But what is good for necessary edification that it might impart grace to the hearers. So what we're not to do is putrefied filth, but what we are to do is communicate things that are necessary. Does this really need to be spoken? Do I really need to say this? And then is it necessary for edification? Are they going to be built up out of what I'm saying? Am I saying it in a way that's going to be able to to build them up? And then that it may impart grace to the hearers. Grace has this idea of a gift. Is my communication a gift to them? Colossians 3, or 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Seasoned with grace. You think about, you've got a meal. There's nothing really wrong with that meal, but there's nothing necessarily really right with that meal either until you put the seasoning. It's all about the seasoning. You can have tacos that are very ordinary, and then you put some good seasoning, some good taco seasoning on that, maybe even some, when you mix up the seasonings fresh, and you go, oh, this is so good. And maybe the speech, there's nothing technically wrong with it. Maybe we're not even saying anything that's completely filled with putrefied filth. But it's not necessarily got any grace with it. It's not been seasoned with salt. And so to take the time to pray over our speech and go, I know this is going to be hard for this person that I love to hear, so I'm going to prepare it. And I'm going to prepare it real well. And then I'm going to serve it to them in a way that they can understand and receive. In verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Holy Spirit's living inside of us. And when we're walking in this former conduct, when we're stealing, when we're lying, when we're getting angry, when we're speaking words that we shouldn't speak, the Holy Spirit is grieved. God has emotion. And what's expressed in God being grieved is it's not that he's mad at us, but he knows that we're missing out on what's best, that our lives are being hindered. Our relationship with him is being hindered. Our relationship with others is being hindered. And the Holy Spirit's going, oh, I'm grieved. And there's a lot of experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, empowered by by the Spirit. I think the key to having any success in any of these areas is only through the power of the Spirit. Amen? So we can try for a period of time. We can have great motivation But it really comes where I'm making the choice of the will to put off. I'm putting these things on and then I'm dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Yes, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. What's the best way to not grieve the Holy Spirit is to follow the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Would I listen for your voice in the midst of that conflict? Notice there's a promise here as well. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So not only can we grieve the Spirit, But God wants us to know you're saved, you're sealed. It's not that you've lost your salvation. It's not that those believers inside of this church had lost their salvation. The Holy Spirit had sealed them. 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Notice the progression. Bitterness is that heart that's unwilling to forgive. And bitterness then leads to wrath. And wrath leads to anger, outbursts of wrath. And then clamor is loud and confused noise. Now communication's just loud and confused noise. And then after the clamor is evil speaking. Now just cutting each other down, saying evil things to each other, and it's filled with malice. And malice is the desire to inflict injury. I really mean this. I want this person to to be destroyed. But where did it start? It started with bitterness. And bitterness is a tricky trap of the enemy to get us to choose to not to forgive, to walk in hardness of heart. Over time, that's going to lead to something. It'll lead to anger. And that anger will lead to evil speaking that's mixed with malice. It's all part of a life that's filled with rot. So verse 32 is the antidote. It's the answer to not being bitter. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This is your divine threads. This is something you can't buy and purchase. This is something that comes with Jesus, walking with him, abiding in him, and be kind to one another. So instead of being bitter towards this person and being angry towards this person, I'm putting on kindness. I'm choosing to be kind to them. I'm choosing to treat them the way God would want them to be treated, the way I would desire to be treated, and then I'm going to be tender-hearted. Wrestle with that one for a while. There's someone in our lives that we're having a hard time having a tender heart towards them. When their name comes up, when we see them, the anger starts to build and there's not tenderness there. God's really good at softening hearts if we'll allow them. God, would you tenderize my heart? Would you give me the right heart towards them? God, I'm choosing to have that tender heart. And then forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And that's the key. When we realize how much God has forgiven us and the reason that he forgave us is because of Christ, then that provides the motivation and the means to be able to forgive others. So why did the Father forgive us? Not because we deserved it. Only because of Christ. Only because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he extends that to us because of Christ. That's what the end of verse 32 is saying. It said, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. So I'm forgiven completely in Christ, so I'm choosing then to extend that forgiveness to others. Every time in my life, forgiveness is always a choice of the will. It's always a process. I never feel like forgiving. If you've really been hurt by someone and they've continued to walk all over you, do you feel like forgiving? If you do, I'd love to meet you, you know? You have way more compassion than I do. I'll tell you a bunch of other things I feel like doing, and forgiving's not one of them, right? You know? And it's a choice of faith based upon who God is in his word to say, God, I'm trusting that you desire, you're glorified in forgiveness, so I'm choosing to forgive. I'm changing my mind. I'm going to start praying for that person. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to forgive them. And you make that choice, and then usually 15 minutes later, 15 hours later, 15 days later, you got to make that decision again. I'm choosing to forgive them. But over time, the will 
takes over and the emotions start to line up with the choice of the will. All of these things that are given to us in this section of scripture are choices that we make that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, what clothes are you wearing? Like, no. No, what, what clothes are you wearing? Are you wearing the old threads from the former life, the lust of the flesh? Or are you wearing the new threads? Speaking truth, working hard, being kind, being tenderhearted, forgiving one another. This is a daily moment-to-moment practice. Oh, there's some contrasting colors here. There's some contrasting clothes here. I need to put this off, and I need to put this on. As I've gone through this and studied this, there's been plenty of conviction for me and this in my own life. Plenty of areas that I need to grow. Plenty of areas where I need to learn Christ to allow him to be my teacher. So let's go to Christ tonight. Let's fellowship with him. Let's enter into communion. Confess these things to the Lord. Receive his forgiveness. Choose to follow him in these areas of our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us the truth. From your perspective and your wisdom and your love for us, you know the damage that lying does and anger and the words that we speak, what stealing does to relationships and how it hurts people's lives. God, I think all of us could agree that we have worked on these areas in our own strength and our own power and it's had no avail. There's been no victory. God, we confess to you that we need you. Jesus, we need you. And as we spend time in communion, we want to draw near to you. You're the bread of life. You are the living water. Would you change our hearts where our hearts are hard? We choose to put off that former conduct. We choose to put on the new man. And would you do a work in our lives that would glorify you and set us free from sin? So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.